Today's reading comes from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 to 30, which you can find in the Church Bible on page 786. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. We're just into a second week in a series where, talk, where we're into talking about the kingdom of God, a new kingdom that Jesus is explaining in the Sermon of the Mount, which is described in Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. We're a little bit into it, but we'll give you a bit of a summary on where we're up to in just a moment. But how about we pray that God will help us to understand this part of his word. Some really heavy things going on and we really need his help to help, help us to explain it to us and help us understand. So let's pray. Dear Father, as we meet here this morning, as we hear the rain on the roof and the quietness in the room, Lord, we set our hearts upon you and we look to you for guidance, to show us who you are, to reveal yourself to us, that you'll help us to understand who we are. And through your word this morning, your spirit will be alive and active to challenge our hearts, to mould it and shape it into the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Sometimes we find rules are a little bit grey, you know, they're not as clear as they could be. So a rule like, if you want to get on top of your roof, you need a ladder, and you should use a ladder. But then if the rules are a little bit grey, what does a ladder actually look like? And I'm hoping there might be a picture of some guys with a ladder on a pretty high roof. Surely that's a ladder. It's a bit grey, isn't it? Well, what are you meant to do? What about if you're a baggage handler and your boss says, I want you to move the bags from one spot to the next. That's your job. Just do it. That's the law. Doesn't matter how, doesn't matter how you do it, how high you stack the bags like this guy. Or what about if you live in an apartment building and the law is that you've got to clean your own windows? Does it really matter how you clean your own windows like this guy? Who's, that's two photos, by the way. The close-up one, he's outside of his balcony and the next one that he's like 100 storeys up in the air. But he's obeying the law, right? He's cleaning his own windows. This is a bit of a grey area. What does it really mean? But we're into this series this week and we're looking at Jesus' instructions on the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom of God. And he's stating the law, but the law is like there is only one law. It's very black and white. It's very simple. There is no grey about this entering the kingdom of God. That through all scripture it says only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. There's no grey error in that. No fuzzy, how do you reinterpret that? It's the righteous, only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. And we see Jesus saying this, a part of the Sermon on the Mount, a little bit later. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what righteousness means. To do God's will as, as God the Father is holy, is pure and perfect. If we want to be righteous, we live like him to be righteous like that. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God, and who doesn't want to go to heaven, right? It's for all eternity, to be with our Father God. All the good things happen in heaven. There's the rule. There's the law. Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. So last week we started uh, where Jesus started in Matthew chapter 5 and with this little bit we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes been run us through last week but it's kind of good news if you're one of those people listening to Jesus. Jesus talking to a big crowd, there's some um, people from Jerusalem which you'd assume are Jews, strong Jews, strong religious people. There's also people scattered uh, from scattered uh, countries all around Judea so they're a little bit less religious, they're broken people, talks about people who have had diseases and been healed and demon-possessed, things like that. So you get this real diversity of people listening to Jesus. And we started last week with these Beatitudes in chapter, in chapter 5, where Jesus is saying, only broken people will enter the kingdom of God. This is kind of his point, only broken people will enter the kingdom of God. And he starts off in verse 3. So I'll just quickly run through it again. If you are here last week, hopefully this refreshes you. But if you weren't here, this is a bit of a catch-up. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's like those people who have got nothing to offer God. They're not proud and boastful about their righteousness. They're actually spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, and they're mourning because of their sinful position. For they will be comforted. Notice all these are heart type issues at this point. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're not righteous, but they hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they will be filled. That's a heart condition. What about what they do with their hands? How's that reflective? From verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, this is good news. If you're a broken person, you're not perfect, you're not religious, you haven't got all your stuff together. Jesus is saying only broken people will enter the kingdom of God, is what he's saying through this. But then if you're sitting there listening to Jesus, particularly if you've devoted yourself to obeying the religious laws of the day, you're going, hang on a minute, this is different. This is different. I thought the law was only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. But now, it's kind of the broken are also in the kingdom of God. What are they expecting Jesus to say? Because if you're one of the broken people, you're going, yay, Jesus, this is a message for me. You know, maybe Jesus has come to abolish the law, get rid of the laws and rules and regulations that go with religion. If he gets rid of that, that's what he's talking about. I can be a part of the kingdom of God. But then Jesus goes, in the next little bit, firstly, he says only broken people will enter the kingdom, but now he does a flip, it would seem. Only righteous people will enter the kingdom of God. We pick it up in verse 17. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... See what he's saying about the law and how he's reinforcing it. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches as these commands will be, called the great, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your righteousness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious guys that are teaching us, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Man, this is heavy. Jesus is not come to rewrite all the Old Testament. He's not going to change the law. The righteous will enter the kingdom of God. He's come out, and it sounds to me like one of those cranky principle type speeches. I'm not sure about you. At high school, when I was at high school, I can remember we had at least three principles while I was at high school. And every time they'd come out, their first speech to the, the school was a cranky speech laying down the law. It's no surprise I had three principles. I was there for like 16 years, so kind of... I wasn't there for 16 years. But we did have this turnover of principles and they'd come out and go, these are the rules, these are the things I'm going to crack down on. You will be expelled, you'll have letters to your parents, you'll you'll have detention if you don't obey the rules. It's not until after they've been there a while, they soften up, they get to know the culture and everything's all happy. But they come out laying down the law and it feels like this is what Jesus done, that he's come down the heavy, this is the law, the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God, anything less and you will fail anything less you will fail (coughs) see this righteousness thing you need the certificate you need a bit of paper to say that you are righteous and it sticks with you if you're a righteous person jesus said you can carry that to the gates of heaven and be let in now i know it's not going to be a 
bit of paper that we take to the gates of heaven. But it is like that thing. When I got a degree, so I did end up finishing high school, I did end up getting a degree, uh, you end up with some letters after your name, which I thought was pretty cool. I'd never had that before. Ross Wilson, B-T-H. Sounds pretty classy. But then I realised other people could have other letters after their name. Because if they did well, they would have honours put after it. So whenever you wrote down your name formally, you'd go, Ross Wilson, BTH, honours. It's like the BTH says, look at me, I'm special, look what I've done. If you've got honours, it says, no, no, have another look. I'm really special, look what I've done. It's kind of that, kind of, you can tell I didn't get honours, so I'm a little bit jealous in what I'm saying. But you can tell it's, it's something that sticks with you, it's a part of your identity if, if you've got that, that degree and if you've got the honours and things like that. Where to be right, seen as righteous, he's saying, you've got to be so righteous, you need a degree in righteousness in a sense, but you've also got to pass so well that you do it with honours. That's where the bar is set. Now, I fell way short of that with my degree. I was kind of known as the 50.5% guy. There's one subject I went through, uh, Greek language. Why do we need to learn ancient language? Uh, I passed three semesters of Greek language, three semesters with the highest mark, not an average mark, a highest mark of 50 and a half percent. It's kind of, there's no overstudying there. Actually, I did study my butt off to get that 50 and a half percent. Passed everyone. I'm falling way short of getting honours, scraped through by the skin of my teeth. But Jesus is saying, no, when we're talking righteousness, it needs to be a pass and pass with honours. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God. But then Jesus, he sets the bar so high for us. He comes out with his cranky voice. And you kind of think, surely, if you're on the mountain, you know, there's the broken people, there's religious people. And you're starting to think, surely this is a prank, right? What are you saying? It's impossible. And you're waiting for the cameras to come up to the side. And everybody goes, surprise, you know, you thought we were serious, but we're only joking. You should have seen the look on your face when you heard Jesus said, you have to be righteous. But then Jesus is serious. He's serious. He actually goes on to go, this is what righteousness looks like. He says, I'm going to give you six, six um, subjects that you've got to pass well at. When he talks about the righteous people entering the kingdom of God. The first one he comes up with, murder. There's a lot to cover here. We'll be going through these fairly quickly, so there might be questions that you want to talk about afterwards. But you'll get the, the drift of what he's saying. He says, you have heard it said. And when he says that, he's talking about what the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees are teaching people, the religious people. You've heard it said, this is how to be righteous, this is how to obey the law. You've heard it said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's fair enough. If you do the actions with your hands, if you murder someone, you should be held accountable for that, the judgment. But then Jesus says, but I tell you, I'm going to explain righteousness now, he says. Righteousness is not about just what you do with your hands. It's what's going on in your heart. He says, I tell you, even if you get angry, you will face judgment. If you call someone raka, which is an offensive term, if you call someone raka, says you'll be judged for that as well anyone in fact anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fire of hell now i'd 
go as far as saying, if you've got a driver's license, I'd say this more than once, you've said under your breath, you fool to someone who's just cut you off, haven't used their indicators, or driving too slow in the fast lane. We do it under our breath, if not once in a lifetime, once every time we hop in the car. And if we're lucky, it's we say you fool and not some other F word that we might be thinking as well. But we do that. So you fool, what are you doing? Be saying, when you do that, you're in danger of the fire of hell. This is serious. He says, don't even think about going to the temple and making your sacrifices. That's where they used to go down to get right with God. They'd bring their sacrifices, they'd uh, confess their sins, they'd apologise to God uh, and worship him down at the temple. He says, you can't go down and worship at the temple if you're not right with the people around you. Go and sort out that before you can try and get right with God. That's how serious it is. He says, with, with your hands, you might not have murdered anyone. But with your heart, you're not loving them either. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he says, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry about that. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now, this one's kind of pretty clear with your hands, you know, adultery's doing some sexual relationships outside your marriage. Yeah, it's inappropriate. Even uh, anybody with any sort of morals today will go, no, I'll never do that. That's a bad thing to do. But Jesus says, no, no, righteousness is more than just the actions of your heart. It's about what's going uh, more than actions of your hands. It's what's going on in your heart. So there, if you look at someone with lust in your heart, he says you're committing adultery. He says, if that's you, you're better off plucking your eyes out than to be found unrighteous and thrown into hell. See, it's not only cut off your eyes, if, you, if, you, if that's causing you to stumble, cut off your hands, cut off any part of your body, if that's causing you to go down that path of committing adultery in your heart. Now, I know we don't have to spend much time on this one because looking around, I know lust is not a problem in this church because nobody seems to be plucking out their eyes or cutting off their hands. Or we're just good at denying it or good at hiding it. We don't want anybody to see what we're up to or see what we're thinking. Or we just read over this bit really quickly, not taking the seriousness and weight of what Jesus is saying. Or we have a low view of hell. You know, when Jesus says you could be thrown into hell for this, oh, hell's not that bad after all, surely. But the problem is God knows what's going on the inside. We judge each other of what's going on with the hands. Well, I'm not committing adultery. I've never done that. Look, see? Ask. Ask around. But in your heart, God knows. God knows, are you living righteously? What about divorce? He says, as it, uh, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. If anyone divorces his wife... Uh, He's talking about, is he talking about remarriage here? Is he saying there should be no divorce at all? If you divorce, he sort of says, you know, if there's adultery in it and you need a divorce, uh, can you remarry? Because he's saying in, uh, being remarried is adultery as well. It's a hard thing that he's saying. So what we need to do when it comes to tricky bits like that is what is Jesus saying here in the context of Sermon on the Mount, the passage, what is Jesus saying in the whole of the New Testament to make it consistent? Because the Bible is always consistent with itself. And how does it fit consistent with all of Scripture? 
So a, a way of understanding what's going on here is to jump a little bit later in Matthew, Matthew 19, where Jesus is talking to some people about marriage and divorce. And he explains in chapter 19 how God created man and woman, and through that man and woman, the two become one. He uses that Genesis language. Two become one, and God uh, blesses them in that relationship. And that relationship, the two become one, is forever. That is God's plan. And we pick it up, chapter 19, verse 6. <coughs> he says, What God has joined together, let no, let no man separate. It's God's plan. Two have become one. Then in verse 7, Why then, they ask, the people listening to him, why then did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Good question. Saying, Moses, the guy in the Bible, God's man, allowed us to have divorce, to separate the, the, the one into two again. Moses said it's okay. But then Jesus replies in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Saying God's plans for all of us is when two people come together, they leave their parents, two become one. And it's God's plan that that is forever. It's vows we take before him. There's a problem here though, isn't there? That we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who proved to be sinful, selfish people that are only interested in themselves. That we're, we're children of that. We've got to have a culture of that. And when you get two sinners and you say, let's make them one, that's a miracle if that's going to work. And the problem is when it breaks down. And when it breaks down, what do you do? It's been compared, it's been described to me as like a festering sore that, you know, a sore comes up like a boil. I don't, I'm not even going to show you a picture of this. But then it gets pussy and the pus builds and then starts to spread relationships can be that toxic that it's like that it just gets worse and worse what do you do when it gets worse and worse do you say to the couple you must say to stay together you must not get divorced you must not separate because god said two be one you must stay together even if there's abuse even if there's violence even if there's hate what's going to happen in that relationship the pus is going to build the sin's going to get worse there could be violence. Yeah, it's a terrible statistic. Uh, every week in Australia, somebody dies of domestic violence. It's a statistic. It actually reveals our sin when two people come together. There's nothing more revealing. Uh, just ask my wife about me, about sin, because it reveals our sin when, when that happens. So he says, divorce was given because of sin, because of our break. In fact, divorce is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, let's start again. Divorce is actually acknowledging we are sinners, we are broken. We call it a broken relationship because it is the two become one isn't working. So it's to say, let's stop this from spreading the past, spreading to the kids, to the family, to the friends. Let's end it now. To, to contain sin or compensate for sin is why Moses allowed it to happen. So it's admitting we're in a sinful world and that's hard and we're broken. <clears throat> but we should also say Christians uh, don't handle divorce well at all. Uh, no, I know we've got divorced people who are part of our congregation and are blessed by them. But it's easy for us, and I'll admit, it's easy for us to treat divorced people as second-class citizens. 
And I think purely for the only reason that their sin is more public than anyone else's. I'm divorced. I've had a failed relationship there. I've had lots of failed relationships in friendships, but we don't see that. We don't talk about that. And in fact, a divorced person knows what Jesus is saying is true more than anyone else. That nobody chooses to go through divorce because they're admitting that it's failed. There's sin here. It's not working. It's not going to God's plan in what's going on. So it's actually harder harder for them it's a very public sin what jesus is talking about a public demonstration of sin but we need to know and anybody who's married there and anybody who's seen or known a married person which i think is everybody knows that if two become one and then they're both sinners it's actually a miracle if they stay together anyway it's only by god's grace that we stay together and we're not a statistic as well So we should have sympathy and empathy and just acknowledging we're all sinners, we're all broken. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Because then we've got to ask the question, how does this fit in to what Jesus is saying in this whole, are you righteous? How are you going to that? You can say, like the people there, well, I'm righteous because I've given her a certificate of divorce and I've moved on in my relationship. My hands are clean. What Jesus is saying, no, just because Moses allowed you to do that is compensating for your sin maybe a better question to ask is how is your marriage is your marriage reflecting godliness are you living as two become one or are you living in your household as two separate people sharing a house are you building each other up in godliness are you being the godly husband and godly wife just encouraging righteousness in your household that's at the heart of it as much as a certificate of divorce It's a hard thing, talk to me more later if you like, but definitely it's a very public sin and there's a lot of hurt involved. What about oaths? Uh, Jesus says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep your oaths you have made to the Lord. And then he gives this example. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne. It gives a few lists, whether you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even your own head. See, what they used to do, this needs a little bit of context. The Jews, uh, the Pharisees, in their good wisdom, said, look, we have this law trying to be righteous, so we'll establish uh, other rules to help us be righteous. So when you say an oath, when you make a promise to someone, and this is part of their, uh, part of their instructions, the writings that we have, If you say, I'm going to promise to do this for you, and I swear by Jerusalem, God's holy city, that I will do it. They say, because you're swearing by Jerusalem, your intentions might be good, but you don't have to do it. Like, it's just wishful thinking. You plan to do it. But if you say, I'm going to promise to do do this for you, and I swear facing Jerusalem, you have to do it. Because you're facing Jerusalem, God's holy city. It's a play on words, isn't it? So what they're trying to do is say, look, there's some things you might say that are a bit bit fuzzy, a bit grey, you don't have to, but there are other things you really do have to say. What Jesus is saying, what you're forgetting, whether you swear by heaven, whether you swear by earth, whether you swear by Jerusalem, even the hairs on your head. And they're all gods. And the problem with that then is God knows what you're swearing by, what you're promising, and he knows your intentions. You might fool the people around you by your hands, I'm righteous, I didn't really promise to do that. But what he's saying is, no, God knows. You're swearing by God that you're doing. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what he's saying. Be, 
be honest all the time. Don't be pushing your own agenda, stretching the truth, because truth can be a bit grey. Did I really promise that? Did I really say that? He's saying you can justify yourself with your hands and your lips, but with your heart, you've got to be honest. You've got to be honest with what's going on. <clears throat> what about justice? Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is justice. And he goes on to say, well, I'm going to tell you, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other cheek. If somebody steals your tunic, heaven forbid, give them your cloak as well. If somebody asks you to go a mile, and that's what the Roman soldiers were allowed to do, if they didn't want to carry their backpack, they could get you, hey, carry this for me. They're allowed to do it legally for a mile. But then they had to let you go, they had to stop. He says, if they do that, carry it two miles. If somebody asks to borrow something, why not give it to them? Here's another tough one. <clears throat> so we've got to think of well, how is this consistent with the rest of Scripture? Because we know if we follow these things, and there's been examples of people living this to the letter, they're the ones who become poor, broken, destitute, and they're the ones having to borrow from other people and stealing from other people. So it kind of doesn't work uh, fully if you take this literally. So it's not necessarily prescriptive when we see it through the, throughout the Scripture, but there is a principle like everything else that's going on. See, what uh, Jesus is saying, this whole eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that again dates back to Moses. We can blame a lot of this on Moses, actually. Because what was happening is somebody would do wrong by me. They stole my sheep. I'm pretty cranky about that. I want justice about that. I'm going to get back two of his sheep to teach him a lesson because he shouldn't have taken my sheep. So I steal two of his sheep. He gets even more crankier. So he says, okay, stuff your sheep, I'm going to take your prize-winning bull. And see, it gets escalates and escalates till this whole family warfare on each other because we all want justice and a bit more to, to, to compensate for us. So then Moses says, no, no, if somebody steals a sheep, get a sheep back. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Don't exceed this whole I've been done wrong thing. <clears throat> but then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, it's not just all about you. Why don't you practice generosity? As God the Father uh, is generous, you be generous. That's what righteousness is like. The sin doesn't blow up, that, that we stop being self-seeking and protecting our own kingdom, but start being self-serving and start looking after other people. How that works out will be different in your life. But that's often the question, isn't it? Whether it's somebody asking us for money, whether it's a beggar or a loan or whatever... Our first question from the deep down in our heart is, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? But Jesus is saying, no, if you like Father God, you'll want to bless them, you'll want to give them, you'll want to be self-serving, not self-seeking. Last one, enemies. Verse 43. You have heard it was said, <clears throat> love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. He says, even God the Father is generous to all people. He sends rain on the righteous, but he also sends rain on the unrighteous. He gives them good crops. He blesses them. He blesses them all. So as our Father God is generous, we too should be generous. He says, don't be just nice to your friends. Even criminals go out and are nice to their friends. You're better than that. If you're following the Father God, you welcome everybody as your friends, even your enemies that we pray for them, that we love them. Now, it's easy 
if we're speaking honestly out of our hearts, it's easy to have a grudge against someone. If it's at the workplace, they do nothing for me. In fact, they hassle me about stuff. Why should I do anything for them? Why don't I start hassling them, get them back? What about my neighbours that are always annoying me with their noise and their their phone calls and their, their complaining? I'll pray for them. I'll pray that God moves them on. Do we actually pray for them that they actually know God and know righteousness? Every time we hear a terrorist attack, a bombing, those mongrel Muslims, what are they doing? Yet Jesus is saying, no, no, don't be cursing them, pushing them away. How about you start loving them, praying for them, accepting them, caring for them? That's what true righteousness is because that's what our Father God does. And he sums it up in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, perfectly righteous. And it's only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. That's the one law, right? Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. Now, we can have proud hearts and go through this and just go, I've I think I'm okay. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never divorced. I never tell lies. I never cheat. And I never show my hate. I contain it quietly. We can do that with a proud heart. But Jesus is saying, no, if you want to know what righteousness really is, it's more than about what you do with your hands and your actions. It's what's going on in your heart. And your heart, have you ever thought someone a fool? Because if you had, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus' words, not mine. Have you ever looked lustfully on a person? Whether it's a a person standing in front of you or whether it's a picture, whether it's an image on your screen, it doesn't matter. If you ever looked lustfully in your heart and desired that, he's saying, you're in danger of the fire of hell. You could be thrown into hell, he says for that one. He said, at least I haven't got a divorce. Jesus is saying, well, how is your marriage? Are you glorifying God? Are you two living as one, building each other up in godliness? Is your yes a yes? That it's, uh, or is your truth a bit more subjective? That you only talk about things that are going to advance your agenda and not uh, show the real you, what's going on the inside? Or is your life living all about you and what you can get out of it, building your kingdom? Or are you living a life of self-sacrifice? Loving those who even hate you. See, this is how you'd get the degree in righteousness, with honours, to have a heart like that. The bar is set high. How are you feeling about your assessment now? Getting your degree at the end, having that honours after your name that you show, I'm special. Actually, I'm really special in righteousness. See, I think Jesus knows our heart better than we're often willing to confess, willing to acknowledge even, that when he puts his finger on each of those things, it really hurts. But I think there's three responses to what he's saying here. One is to get angry. Whether it's angry at me or angry at Jesus, it's who are you to say things like that about me? You don't know me. You don't know who I am or what I've been through in life. And you can go away from here feeling very very defensive, very self-righteous about how can they judge me like that. That's one way of responding. A second way of responding is to go, actually, I'm hearing what Jesus is saying and I think I can do this. 
Jesus saying the bar's set here. I reckon I'm going to go home. I'm going to clean up my act. I think I can do this. When it comes to being righteous, I can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And you become all religious because that's what religion does. It sets more rules, more laws. You can do this. Try harder. You're not good enough. Build yourself up because you need to do it and get your act together. So we can walk away like the Pharisees, feeling all religious and challenged and beaten up. Or we can feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. That we can acknowledge the failure of what's going on in our lives and our hearts. That we acknowledge the brokenness of where we're at. That we realise how ungodly we are, how unrighteous we are, how unworthy we are. When Jesus says, how do you measure up? No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I want to live for God, I have the best intentions, I'm going to walk away from here going there. I want to live for God, I want to live more righteous, but I know by this afternoon I'm going to fail again. It's my sin, I can't control, I can't get on top of it. See, if you're feeling like that, you're getting what Jesus is saying. You understand what Jesus is saying and you can walk away from here today knowing that Jesus knows your heart and he's not pushing you away. In fact, he's welcoming you in. He wants to hold your hand and he wants to be a part of your life. See, if you're that sort of person, it's actually the brokenness, the broken person. You're the person that he's after. When he says, blessed are you, the poor in spirit. So are you feeling spiritually bankrupt? From what Jesus is saying. Blessed are you, the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who mourn. Are you sorry for your sin? As, as we've gone through that list and really pointed the finger, they're actually saddened, deeply saddened and grieved by our sin and our thoughts and our actions. But blessed are you who mourn over your sin because you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. If you know that you're not coming to the table with any righteousness to offer, any good things to offer, except your brokenness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've got no righteousness of my own. No matter how hard I try, I keep failing and failing. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled, he says. When you hear that, you can go away today knowing that Jesus is not pushing you away because you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough. He's saying, actually, I want to bless you into the kingdom. That's refreshing. It's comforting. Leaves us with this dilemma. How does this work? Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. Clear rule. That's not a grey rule. Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God. How does that work? <clears throat> If I come up to the kingdom of God with my certificate of 50.5% in righteousness, I'm not going to get let in. I'm not sure how heaven's gate's going to work. But if you come up with your certificate, what are they going to say to you and turn you away? The only way I'd get into the gates of heaven with a certificate of righteousness, if somebody got the paperwork mixed up and Ross Wilson, certificate of righteousness, degree in righteousness with honours, they didn't mess up my certificate before. I don't think I'm going to mess up my certificate again. The only other way I can get through the gates of heaven with that is if somebody who is able to get a degree in righteousness with honours and they actually chose to give it to me, 
or I swindled them out of it, but what if they chose to give it to me? I might be able to get in with that. But who would care about me enough to do that? They've done the work. They've earned it. It's their ticket of righteousness, not mine. Who would do that for me? Who would care about me enough to do that? A broken sinner. Except Jesus. Because that's what Jesus does. See, instead of saying only broken people are allowed into the kingdom of heaven or only uh, righteous people are allowed into the kingdom of heaven, he actually says only broken people who are made righteous will enter the kingdom of God. See, this is the start of Jesus' ministry. He's laying the platform out of what he's going to do and what he's going to teach on. And if we go back to verse 17, he gives us a clue on what's coming up ahead. Verse 17, where he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, this, this law of righteousness, I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to get the degree. I'm going to get the degree with honours, living just like my Father God which he does. Jesus completely fulfills what's going on here, what's required. He loved when he was hated. He honoured women, not lust over them. He had a high view of marriage. He kept his word. He blessed those who cursed him. He gave to those who were taking from him. He did all those things, fulfilling the law. He lived the perfect life. Just as the Heavenly Father is perfect, he was perfect. He's perfect, and he gets that certificate. Now, throughout the New Testament, then, a number of different places, we're told that he shows this certificate of righteousness that he has earned, that he gives to those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for those who trust him, for those who believe in him, for those who have faith in him, he gives his certificate of righteousness. And you know what that does? So now I go to the gates of heaven and go, gee, will God accept me into the kingdom of heaven? I've got my ticket. I know it's Jesus' certificate. But I go up and I look at there thinking, oh no, what's he going to see when he sees Jesus' name? But Jesus has scrubbed out his name and he's got my name written on it. It's now my certificate. Jesus has transferred it to me that I can get in. And I don't even have to wait to get to the kingdom of heaven to find out that. It's a present thing now. I know now Jesus has given me uh, his righteousness that has my name on it. Only through Jesus, but because he swapped it for me to give me life that I can enter the kingdom. Yeah, hang on a minute. He can give me the righteousness, which means we've sat through this long talk and go home happy. It was always going to end like a happy story. Happy ever after. Everybody wins. Not everybody wins in this story. Because if it's a real swap, he takes my, uh, he gives me his righteousness. If it's a swap, he's going to take my 50.5% certificate. That's no good. It's not worth the paper it's written on. In fact, if you fail, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it talks about death and hell if you don't make it into the kingdom of God. Jesus takes that. So when Jesus... Uh, he's on his journey, he's teaching all this stuff, going, I'm going to fulfill the law, I'm going to become uh, completed and become righteous, I'm going to give my certificate to you guys. But that means he takes our penalty of death. So as his ministry unfolds, we see he's on this journey to the cross to give up his life. That on the cross that he dies for all the lying and cheating that I've done, for all the times when I've been self-centred and not self-sacrificing for all the time I've looked at images or lusted after anybody 
He dies for that. For any time I've been dishonest with my words, that I've had my own agenda, hated anybody when I should have loved them, not been generous when I was trying to look after me. For all that, he dies the death that I deserve. He takes the penalty for my unrighteousness. Not everybody wins. He had to go through that for us to be made fully righteous and for, for justice to be done. Now, God the Father was so pleased in the Son that even though the Son didn't come home then, he was cut off from the kingdom. Three days he was buried. That on the third day, that God the Father raised him from the dead because he was the perfect Son, perfectly righteous. God raises him from the dead and brings him home. That we can say the deal is complete. The deal is done, what Jesus has done for us. See, this is why we talk about Jesus a lot in this church. We don't talk about rules, regulations, religion or laws that you need to be better. You need to be the good person if you want to get into heaven. You need to be the right person to be a part of this congregation. It's never about that. In fact, when we look around here, I can guarantee you, you see all these nice faces, but we're a room full of broken people. We're the people that are falling at Jesus' feet going, have mercy on me because I know my heart and I know you know my heart and I know only the righteous get into heaven and I need Jesus. I need Jesus. So we sing about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we cling to Jesus, our only way of salvation. Sure, we need to take the law seriously. Everything that Jesus says, we need to take it seriously. Not because we can think we can get into the kingdom of heaven through our own righteousness, but because that's what our Father God is like and we love living like our Father God, that we want to live like him and we want to live like that. But he knows we're going to fail. We're going to try, but we're going to fail. But we need to keep coming back to Jesus, clinging to Jesus, because in him we have life. His grace upon grace poured out upon us. Even when we fail, he accepts us. That's the sort of church we need to be. Even though there's sin and brokenness all around, we're clinging to Jesus, pointing people to him. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we just thank you for your unconditional love for us. And we confess to you that what we've been talking about this morning, they're heavy words, Lord. Heavy words. Because for many of us, we've been hiding what's been going on in our hearts. Either denying that, that we don't do those things. Or we hide those things in such a way that we want people to think that we're so righteous, even though we know we fail. But Lord, let us let's appreciate what you're saying here. That we not go away angry because we're being judged. Let us not think that we can achieve what you're talking about here through our righteousness by being more religious, doing more things. But let us cling to Jesus, the one, the one who takes the punishments for us on the cross, for all those things I've done in the past, for all the things I'm going to do today, for all the things I'm going to do for the rest of my life, that you've showered me with this grace, given us your righteousness, and given us true life in the kingdom of God. Lord, thanks for your love. Thanks for your mercy. Thanks for accepting us as your children. And we pray that as we meditate on this, not just now, for the rest of the day, for the week, for the rest of our lives, Lord, we just pray that we know we can depend on you and keep coming back to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.